Welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, and this week we're taking a break from the movies and doing a spoiler-filled post-view dissection of a TV show, specifically the fourth and final season of AMC's wonderful Halt and Catch Fire, which just ended on Saturday, October 14th. Here to talk with me are Matt Desim, Browbeats Nights and Weekends editor. Hi, Matt. Hello. Thank you for having me. And June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate Podcast. Hi, June. Hey, Willa. So Halting Catch Fire aired for four seasons, during which time I would say it was criminally underappreciated and underwatched. This is a really, really, really great show that was also um, perhaps not totally coincidental to its being underwatched. Very lovely and nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we could all use more of that in our lives right now. So I'm hopeful that tons and tons of people are going to find it now that it's over. <laughs> First three seasons are streaming on Netflix already. It seems to be at this point almost received wisdom that it will become like a classic once people actually realize that it's there and start watching and maybe if they start especially if they start with season two i think that would be which i recommend that you do you feel free to start at season two because it's sort of so underwatched i think though we're going to be talking about the finale and everything that happened i think we can sort of talk a little more broadly about the show and not just what transpired at the very end of it um in in a series i think of like really phenomenal and bittersweet episodes that ended the show. So the show actually started in Texas in 1981. That's where it began. And though the actors themselves never aged, like right. they they looked <laughs> stunning and youthful and dewy the entire time. When it ended, it was in California in 1994. So they started in their 20s. They ended in their 40s. They looked exactly the same, like they were in their 30s. <laughs> gorgeous. And during that time, they also, the four major characters of the show, almost invented, among other things, the personal computer, eBay, chat rooms, web browsers, and Google. They failed to ever actually invent any of them, but they were trying to. And also Um, like non-first-person shooter video games. Yes, exactly. I'm sure there's more. So that's just to say that it actually covered a lot of ground. So I I do, I kind of do just want to set up what the show was and is about. Well, so it's about four people who originally meet, like you said, in Texas in the 80s. They're working for Cardiff Electric, uh, which is a what are they making, semiconductors or something? Yeah, they were originally a transistor company. It's like a, it's an old-fashioned yeah. company that makes electronics, yeah. but it's not a tech company in any sense that we would understand it now. Right. And it's like right at the moment that PC clones sort of hit where IBM was still, it's like right at that transition. And then those people from Texas eventually move out to Silicon Valley, all for their own sorts of reasons, where they end up working in networking and then gaming and then eventually uh, search engines, uh, which is what the last thing is about. But it's sort of over that entire, that decade where computers went from being this, you know, monolithic thing that you would buy uh, from one company to something everybody had as part of their lives, sort of as a daily basis. Right. When the show begins and they're making these personal computers, they're having to convince people that anyone would ever even really want a personal computer. That is is the hurdle. People don't think they want a computer in their house. I do just want to say, though, we're going to introduce our four major characters. Yes. Because although there is all of this stuff, I mean, there's a lot of action. For me, it was really about the characters. So the four of them are Joe McMillan, who's a very damaged dude, very good looking, although he did go through some awful haircuts (laughs) over the four seasons. 
he's bisexual throughout this four seasons is kind of in the thrall of Cameron Howe, who is a programmer who is wild and genius and brilliant and like a, a woman of ideas. He locks horns with Gordon Clark, who's kind of starts as like a just a workaday dude and turns kind of turns into an ideas guy, although he's mm. always he's always like the engineer the, of the yeah, bunch, he's like the, the engineer. Builder. Yeah, the worker bee. And Donna Clark is his wife when we meet them all. They have two kids. She got pregnant right out of college. They got married. And she also is an engineer. Or she actually went to college for computer science. In the first season, there's a big scene where she recovers data from a hard drive. So she's capable of using her hands. And Donna and Gordon get divorced over the course of the season in season three? Yeah, so in season three, there's like a huge time jump. And yeah. when we return from that huge time jump, like everything has sort of been chronological up to that point, although yeah. happening very quickly, they're divorced. Let's just turn, I guess, to this more sort of recent spate of events, because if you've made it this far, probably you really like Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah. And you know everything we just said. <laughs> so yeah, so basically, in this season, yeah. um, sort of in episode seven, at the end of episode seven, Gordon dies. Mm. And I think that you know, a lot of shows do this now where they sort of save their most dramatic beat for like the penultimate episode. Yep. And this was not the penultimate episode. It was the seventh. Um, they played the show in a really weird way where we had two episodes per week on Saturday night's height of the TV show. <laughs> Even AMC knew you should be finding it on Netflix one day. <laughs> They're exactly. trying to get through it. So it was kind of penultimate in a way. Right. Exactly. And Gordon's death was like... Just incredibly moving and sort of sweet, even though he's like a, a man in his 40s who has died. And I I will say that Matt and I slacked about this <laughs> and he had some really, really nice thoughts. So I just want you to talk to me, Matt, and everybody else about what was so moving about that whole storyline and how it worked for you. To me, like the last episode where Gordon is alive is just amazingly generous to his character if you're going to have a last day and it's in your 40s, he has a pretty good one. The episode is called Who Needs a Guy? And one of the things about Gordon that you know from the very beginning is that he's never happier than when he's getting his hands dirty, like working on something that involves electrical engineering. Uh, and the other thing about Gordon is that he's stubborn. So it's sort of a trick episode because there's this running thing where the air conditioning at their offices isn't working. And Gordon sort of insists on fixing it himself. And in so doing, blows out the power for the whole building, losing everyone's work. They're working together. He and Joe McMillan are working at a company that was actually started by their daughter. But it's a it's a uh, a search engine company, essentially. Um, so all the employees have to go home, work from home, because he's blown the power for the whole building. Gordon and Joe stay, and they talk about what they want to do with the website going forward. And Gordon sort of methodically fixes the electricity in the building. Then he, he goes home and then almost immediately dies. He's had neurological problems in the past. I mean, it's not, I don't think they ever give a cause of death, but. I think we learned early on that his problem was caused by the work that he did, like by kind of exposure mm -hmm. to lead solder. So in a sense, he he dies because of the things that he loves. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. The work that he loves. Exactly. But like, so narratively, you think you're seeing a scene about Gordon being a stubborn jerk because he insists he's the person to fix it. But, but in fact, you're seeing a scene that shows you like what he loves doing most, you know, that he has this um, this problem that he can solve and he does successfully solve it. Right. And and as you said to me, in fact, like the show sends him off doing this thing that he loves, which is what one of the things about the show that's so nice. It's like, even though they're going to kill him, yeah. they're going to kill him on this sort of on this high. I mean, I think Todd Vanderwerf has been writing about the show. He wrote a couple pieces just at the end and he sort of talked about how there's something iterative about it. Like 
if the guiding sort of metaphor of the series is a tech metaphor in which you're constantly debugging the system, mm-hmm. you're constantly like working out the code until it works properly. That applies to the characters who are constantly like have the same flaws, but each time they go through a situation that inflames their flaws, they're better at handling it. They don't blow up their company or they don't blow up their relationships. But I just want to go back though to Gordon's final day. Because once he gets home, he's got this big date coming up. He's super excited. He's really he's found someone he really likes who's who's right for him. But then before we realize that he's died, I feel yeah. myself getting a bit like sort of like I'm going to cry, which is crazy for something I've already seen. And it's not particularly, you know, anything to do with my life. But he flashes back to something from years ago to when he and Donna were together when their kids were little not now when he still loves his kids obviously but they're they're a trial well, now. they're a teenager yeah. you know the kids are teenagers now giving him the trouble that teenagers give their parents but he flashes back to a scene that's like a very quotidian parenting scene and so even though he's done what he loves and that's his work you have this feeling of like that's Nirvana or something. Totally, yeah. I, this, is, this is related to what I was just going to say, oh. which is also that, which is just that it's like that moment was built on such this sort of deep knowledge that we had of these characters that it had actually built sort of so successfully over such a short period of time. Like four seasons actually isn't, they're 10 episodes each. It's yeah. not a ton of time versus shows that are on forever and ever. Yeah. But like we knew enough about their intimate relationships that we knew that even though Donna and Gordon have been sort of on the outs now for a year and a half, a year and a half, meaning um, <laughs> yeah. a year and a half of the show. They've yeah, been divorced right, right. for more years than that. And they sort of see each other around their kids. And they they obviously know each other very well. But they're sort of like estranged mm-hmm. that like that was like the meat of his life. Yeah. Right. Like that was when his kids were little and his and he and Donna were um, together in this. Yeah. Like that is the heart of his life. That's totally true. <laughs> you know that that's true. You know that that's true from everything that we know about them. And there was something that on the one hand is sort of so like kind of cheesy about that. And like, by the way, I, I mean, I as someone who has small children now, I'm sure I'm in the thing, the part of my life I'm going to remember <laughs> forever. There's something very indelible about it and um, intense. But it just felt like it was it was like a very beautiful moment. And it yeah. also sort of set up the episode that comes after, which is all these people trying to deal with Gordon's death and obviously Cam and Joe have these sort of day-to-day friendships with him insofar as they can have these Mm day-to-day friendships with him. But Donna and he are totally estranged but of course that's the relationship and the grieving that's like the craziest and weird. It's like how do you grieve the most important person in your life who you are divorced from? Um, Which is not a thing I've seen a show explore ever before. Yeah. I mean that's the thing that the show was so full of that. Like you know it wasn't about the plot. It was about the relationships. It was about work. It was about getting on with exes or still being friends with people even after you've had massive blow-ups and how you maintain those relationships. And that's kind of what a lot, like 99% of shows are in theory about. But when you watch Halt and Catch Fire, especially this final season, you think, what the hell are all those other shows doing? (laughs) Like, they don't have the first idea of what that means. And also what was interesting about putting Gordon's death in episode seven and eight is that it actually, it ended up showcasing what became the, the real love story of the show, which is this friendship between Donna and Cam. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just to back up, when the show right. began, part of the reason that its first season was a little bit of a mess and that people don't like it so much is it looked a lot like an anti-hero knockoff. It started with um, Lee Pace's Joe coming in as this kind of wounded, bravado-ish 
Douche. guy who's who like walks into this situation has all these plans starts sleeping with this sort of mildly Asperger's beautiful hacker genius and and Donna at that time seemed really just like an afterthought wife character mm-hmm. and you thought you were walking into like two bros figuring out how to like solve computers and the show really pivoted or matured and in its second season sort of made this move where it ended up being about Donna and Cam's starting a small business together, which was this video game company called Mutiny. And I find, like, I do this in my writing all the time. I think that there is right now, like you sometimes people say or critics say or when you're trying to explain why a show is good, you're like, this show's great politics. It's like super feminist. That's why it's so good. (laughs) And that's never why a show is actually good. That's just an interesting thing that it's doing that's maybe opening it up to storylines you haven't seen before. Yeah. So it is totally a show about female friendship that did end up being, like, extremely on the beat of women in tech. Yeah. But somehow it did it in a way that really wasn't as hammy as, like, that sounds. Yeah. So Donna and Cam have this really dynamic friendship that totally falls to pieces. It's like they have a breakup that is, like, more painful and heartbreaking than Gordon and Donna's marriage coming apart, than Joe and Cam's relationship coming apart, even though that all involves lots of heartbreak. And basically it's only after Gordon's death that Donna and Cam, like, come back together. Right. And figure right. out how to make stuff, yeah. which is the end of the yeah. show is like the happy ending of the show is like they're going to make stuff together yeah. again. Yeah. It comes after what is probably the the most on the nose scene of the show. But <laughs> that was also crazy moving where Donna is at a gathering of what we take to be female Silicon Valley execs. And she gives this speech, which, you know, could be a speech now, what, 25 years later you know, very much issues that are still very relevant, but it ends up being more about kinship and being kind of family to one another. But even though the show is very much also about work. Yeah, it's it's a speech in which she says, like, we're all women, basically. And so even if we're f- in competition, let's, like, look out for one another. Yeah. I thought that was a little, a little pat. I didn't yeah, work. Really. <laughs> like, I like that. That, that seemed, in, yeah. I mean, that wasn't my favorite moment in the series. Actually. No, not my favorite. But, you know, I didn't hate it. But then they undercut it nicely by having yes. Cam walk into a pool right yeah. afterwards. Yes. No, that was that was the way out of that. <laughs> they did a couple super cheesy things that were great, like the Salisbury Hill, like last oh beat. Even using Salisbury Hill as yes. a last song yes. in your show is a, is a joke. But it's also like a kindness. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. The show was kind of like willing to be like, I know this is cheesy, but you love this. This is lovable. Yeah. Like, yeah. truly. So here, have this happy song. Totally. Donna's like definitely my favorite character on the show. Mm. I mean, I don't know. It's like, what does that say about you? So <laughs> what does that say about me? Uh, she really has been. And I thought they like put her through the ringer this season. I don't mean um, just that she had h- bad things happen to her. I mean, she she brought a lot of bad things onto herself. And mm-hmm. she was, um, she behaved extremely badly over and over again. And really like, didn't seem like she understood why she was behaving so like didn't have enough insight into uh, her misbehavior to cease doing it. So basically, um, at the end of last season, they're all going to start a new business again, built around this idea of building a web browser, a door to the Internet. Joe has theorized this idea. And of course, Cam will not work with Donna again. So Donna gets bounced and she gets bounced to venture capital (laughs) group so she gets bounced to being a millionaire but she but this idea of of being sort of like ostracized from the group is extremely painful to her and kind of causes her to 
like she starts drinking too much. She starts being pretty like brittle and nasty and uh-huh. concerned with um, surfaces and appearances. All these things that when we see this flashback that we just seen in the episode after Gordon's death, we see these flashbacks. All these things that she used to complain about about her own mother. And I think like in, in Gordon's death, they really like give her a chance to figure her shit out. So she takes some time off. She swims a lot. Her boss, the managing partner of the firm who brought her into the VC firm, Diane, kind of offers her a chance to take her job, to to become the managing partner. And after Gordon's death, you think, oh, she's not going to. You know, she she asks for some time to think it over. But then she does. And she kind of changes her way of being a boss. She becomes a better boss. She brings in tacos to work. She builds an incubator instead of just someone who gives money. that That was an interesting beat because I think the show is so on the side of making stuff. Yeah. The idea of just giving money to things like that is sort of parasitic or like even its relationship to Joe, who's always been this ideas guy, but he can't build anything. It's like he's always a little artificial and suspect because he can't do it. And the people that can code and that can build things with their hands, which is the other three characters are like when they're doing those things, that's like peak authentic human experience. So she does lean in and agrees to be the money woman. But like it's only actually the right choice because then she starts to like have her hand in helping people create. That's one of the things about the show is that it really does get at like why you, why people enjoy work, like what it is to find like mm-hmm. a job or a vocation mm-hmm. that really feeds your soul or spirit. Going back to Gordon fixing the electricity or whatever, it's like, that's <laughs> to me, one of the big messages of it. It's like, find the thing that gives you that feeling, whatever it is, and, 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 and do that with your life. There are so many scenes throughout all of the seasons of people being their ultimate self when they're being completely antisocial. They look awful and they're so happy and they've not slept for days and they've not spoken and they've not showered and it doesn't matter because they're fucking doing it. They're so happy. And it's so well observed in that sense too. Like there's a scene, I don't remember which episode, but in the fourth uh, season where uh, Cameron is working on some programming problem or other and um, she and Joe are supposed to go somewhere and Joe's like, is it going to be that much longer? And she says, well, just like five minutes or something. He's like, well, I know you believe that. Like. (laughs) He gives her such a sweet kiss. He's yeah. not upset that she's herself. Like yeah, he gets it's, that it's she's the in the zone. Of that. You get obsessed with that, doing that thing. And what did you think about the sort of disintegration of Joe and Cam's relationship? So basically, they break up because he wants kids and she doesn't. Although that is not like the precipitating fight. Like right. we're told right. in the episode right after Gordon's death that this stuff has come up for Joe that he wants kids. We sort of know that that's a true thing. And then in the next episode, she, she's helping him with Comet, the company that they're running together. And he desperately needs her help because she's this genius coder. And she's sort of doing it because she doesn't want to leave him in the lurch, but she's getting increasingly resentful. And you're sort of seeing a mirror of some of the stuff that happened with Gordon and Donna, which is like when the woman has the creative juice, this sort of like a weird unsettling of the power dynamic between them and something not Something's sort of not right. And they get beat by Yahoo. And it turns out Comet's going to fail. And they have sad sex. And then they just break up very nicely. One of the things we all seek in life and that's most difficult to come by is clarity. And there's a clear message. There's Yahoo on the toolbar. And that's it. Comet can't win. (laughs) And they know it. And it's just clear. And it's like, okay, that's done. As you say, they go home and have sex and they just know. It's actually really funny, though, because this is how my mind works, or how you works when you watch a lot of TV. It's like I was just like thinking of like San Junipero. And I was like, well, yeah. maybe just like in the future when they're really old. <laughs> well, funnily enough. And Joe like had kids with somebody else. Like they'll figure it out. They'll just run into each other in like an 80s nightclub right. in, in limbo or wherever. Exactly. <laughs> what did you think about Joe ending up as a humanities teacher? I didn't love that he got the very last scene of the show. Yeah. 
Uh, I think that it's like a bit like the, the, the Madman finale and that there are kind of two ways to look at how things end up for Joe. I mean, he's a, a digital humanities professor, presumably in the 1990s. That was a haven for charlatans. Um, <laughs> but he also has like genuine interest in this stuff. It's kind of like, well, yeah, like Draper coming up with the Coke uh, slogan in, in Mad Men, it, it's sort of the poetically perfect place for him to go. He's like an, someone who can inspire people, but he can't do the work as much himself. It's kind of a place where he could also indulge his worst instincts in terms of bullshitting, taking advantage of other people. I mean, Joe McMillan is not somebody who you're like, oh, wow, let's surround him with very inexperienced people. I see it much more charitably than, than you. The guy has an amazing talent for bullshit. As Cameron is decoding, Joe is to bullshitting. And part of his journey over the seasons has been reining in his bullshit and trying not to use his power of bullshit for evil. In the first season, he had no control over it and he was just causing damage left, right and center. And by the end, the very end, he was using this power to influence and to like make people go, oh, wow, in maybe not a harmful way, but instead of like inspiring kids. The ending felt it's nothing at all like the Sopranos ending, but in the <laughs> sense of like just being in the middle of something. Yeah. It felt like that to me, not because I even think it was trying to necessarily, except that it's so hard for me to imagine Joe McMillan being a humanities teacher in high school for any extended period of time. Yeah. He just had this company that he actually ran properly. It was like a an experience that was good for everyone. He had a for his employees, he had a good idea. He was able to adapt. They got beat. You know, he goes and licks his wounds doing this thing. But it's like, his mind doesn't stay still. It's not like, you know, one of his kids is going to say something about, I don't know, instant messenger. And he's yeah. going to be like, I have an idea. It just seems yeah. like very like this is him sort of taking this pause. And maybe that's not the case, but he's a young guy. And it just seems really hard not to imagine him bopping around back to Silicon Valley in certain capacity or someone approaching him and being like, be the guru yeah. of our company for lots of money. Well, I mean, to that point, like the very first time we meet Joe, he's going to a, a college where or university where Cameron is a student. And I mean, the sort of circular structure, his first line and last line are almost uh, the same. Joe's last line is, let me start by asking a question, which he says to the kids in the class. Which is his first line in the show, too. And the question he asks is, who here wants to be a computer engineer or something, which is not obviously <laughs> what he would ask in the humanities department in 94. But the way that scene plays out is Cameron impresses him in that he follows her or takes her to a bar and ends up well, sleeping with her, but also working with her. It's also possible that what we're seeing is Joe McMillan fishing for the next big thing, you know, I mean, not, I don't mean like like looking for someone to, to, to sleep with, but like he does feed on other people's talent. Yeah. Right. Going yeah. back to his creative roots. Yeah, that's a good read. I like that read. See, I just really do see him living out his life in that humanities department. He's got everything he wants. He's got that. No, he's got oh, that dude, totally he has a office. He's got his teapot. He's got his. It depends. It depends how adored he is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he wants to be a, a like he wants to be adored and to have money and to have power. He does want those things. I think what he wants is to catch the wave on something that's about to happen. Yeah, you know? totally. he just keeps trying to be the person who comes up with the idea, and he does it. But for some reason, one reason or another, every time something goes wrong. I did have a question. Just you know, when the show began, I think the way that people talked about Cam was like she's sort of this some kind of wonderful sort of pixie punk yeah. Asperger's wonderkind, and she has 
retained that quality, although as she knows the other characters in the show, her social awkwardness has sort of reduced because mm-hmm. she's so familiar with them. But in that sort of scene in the episode Goodwill, which is episode eight, so the episode right after Gordon's death, when Donna and Cam really have their rapprochement, Donna also says she has a hard time making and keeping friends. And like that's certainly true as as it is expressed in the show. But I always wondered if that actually like made any sense. Yeah. Maybe the message is like these odd people, these group of four people who had such ups and downs and a little bit of an extension with Diane, with Boz. It just felt more to me like that was like one of those like, we can't have more characters on our TV show. And so that's why Donna doesn't have any friends. Like Joe doesn't have any friends because he's kind of self-absorbed and has only energy for what his eyes are on. Gordon doesn't have any friends because he's like a dad dude. Cam doesn't have any friends because she's Cam. Donna's like a normal person out there in the world who's running like a VC company. Like she yeah. has acquaintance. I just, yeah, yeah. I, I always just, it sort of was like a fetishization of like the loner genius. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not sure they're all yeah. this weird. No, Donna definitely seemed like the more functioning member of the group. Donna's clearly socially adept. I mean, in the fourth season is full of montages of her like hosting dinner parties and stuff. Some of them, well, some of them are disasters, but um, <laughs> but she's, you know, in a way that Cam is not. She's comfortable in like a room full of people talking to them and mm-hmm. so on. But I don't get the impression that she lets those people see too much of herself. It seemed plausible to me that she would know a lot of people but not feel like she had many friends. When she's with Cam and her core group, she's pretty open <laughs> about what's going on with Joni, what's going on with Haley. She- what did you think of the girls this season? I thought that was a really nice presence. I mean, they were essential, obviously, for so many reasons. But again, for that whole, just something that you don't see on TV. What is that relationship of people who are your parents' best friends? What What is it like mm-hmm. to be kind of a parental type figure, but also kind of a friend? Haley's role as the creator of the idea that sparked Comet, which was Joe and Gordon's company with Haley, that seemed a little bit far-fetched. But I liked the way that they played it. I think that Haley sort of epitomized like this major theme of the show and also the season, which is like melancholy look at tech. What's sad about it is what we thought it could be. Mm. And then actually the difference in what it's become. Right. So then the last couple episodes, you know, they Joe is taping this commercial to air for Comet and he's talking to all these people Mm. about like what the Internet means to them. And like half of them are looking for concrete things. Half Mm -hmm. of them don't know what the Internet is. But then a lot of people are sort of like looking for connection, looking for self-actualization, looking to express their true selves. Mm -hmm. And and Haley gives this sort of speech um, when he's videotaping her in the fast food restaurant that to him is like exactly what he's looking for but of course when you think about what's actually the internet has actually made us do it's not like this is a total (laughs) fantasy about like it hasn't hasn't brought us any closer to our true selves or to people that are our true kin than anything else in the history and it may have in fact made us much much further away and like this moment of idealism in the show at once like is part of the reason the show feels so lovely because it has mm-hmm. this sort of very optimistic view about tech, but it is simultaneously layered over with the higher intelligence of the people creating it of the world that we now live in. So it's like, it's very sweet, but it's not cheesy because we know that that is bullshit. And well, and we, like, everyone making the show knows yeah. that that is not yeah. how it, these but, things came to pass. I mean, but it's not entirely bullshit. I mean, there are definitely people who find paths to their authentic selves through the internet or through technology over the course of the film, right? Like, and, and I think that's true for Haley too. Even the conceit of the company. So Comet is a search engine. It literally starts as a yellow page of the internet. Like they're hand coding yeah. every website that is on the internet. 
which we know is like this. And Cameron is making this argument they need an algorithm. And she's, of course, right because she's always right about tech stuff. But like (laughs) they think that you can have this human relationship, that you can keep this human connection. And that is and that is what distinguishes Comet Mm -hmm. from its competition. Mm -hmm. But but it's like that actually doesn't work. It's too big. So we know that this idea, like the stuff that they love about the Internet, this humanity, this like Mm -hmm. one uh, one brain talking to another brain. We already know it's too late yeah. for that. Yeah. The thing that it did do is it obviously enabled the four of them to find each other. Right. And to find Boz. Mm-hmm. I, I will just add that there was, I read um, an interview with the two creators who were both named Christopher in the <laughs> Times, and they were referring to the five cast yeah. members. Yeah, and I Boz literally was, was like, what? Who mm-hmm. is the fifth? I was like, it's Haley. And then I was like, oh, it's Boz. I, Boz is very lovely, but it does not, it is not a five. Yeah. It's a, it's a quartet. I mean, obviously, they've always built up this relationship between Boz and Cameron. It was one of the final episodes. You know, he referred to her just explicitly as his daughter. And, you know, because clearly it was that paternal role. And he kind of had that role for the rest of them, even though it suggested that he screwed up his actual father relationship because of work, you know, with his own kids, that is. But I have to say that the thing that one of the most pleasant surprises of the final episodes, because like there's not a lot of surprise in television anymore, is that. Boz and Diane really loved each other. I that know. She really loved him. And I love that actress so much. Annabeth Gish. Annabeth Gish. Love her. She always makes you think that's the only kind of part she can play. <laughs> but actually, she can play all those parts really well. She was just on Law and Order last week. Um, <laughs> it's just so nice yeah. to be surprised when it makes sense. I Well, I'm going to go back to what Matt had said to me in Slack. Mm. You were really impressed with, in a surprised way, with the final beat of the episode right after Gordon's died, Goodwill, which is framed by these flashbacks, and you see Gordon jump into this lake. I'm going to let you talk about it now, Matt. Well, that's not the only flashback they they go to. I mean, like, the, the most immediate one is that the moment of Gordon's death, you see him sort of slipping through time as he's dying, and you keep seeing younger versions of, of his wife and, and, and children, and he has this last moment that is a version of his wife just sort of looking up at him in a, it's sort of an ambiguous expression, but you see it as sort of like a an image of, home and family. And then in the very next episode, it revises that and lets you see more of what that moment actually was and meant to him. And what it meant to him is he'd left Donna early in the relationship when Joni's still just an absolute baby. And it just reads as like a a picture of domestic bliss, but it's actually him coming back after deciding he's going to stick it out and try to be like a husband or father. Like that's, that's that what that moment means to him. So it had that kind of buried secret in this, those those two episodes in conversation. And then you see that the thing that you couldn't do before, he he goes by himself to what is presumably the same quarry and just jumps off completely on his own and then goes back to his wife. And what I love about it is that when you first hear that story about the quarry, it's a story about Donna, about the fact that she feels like she's left, lost some of her fearlessness, and she's telling it to her daughter. So you have this as sort of like a normal plot heavy TV scene and it works on that level. Then there's a scene shortly thereafter where Donna's been drinking and she starts telling her daughter the exact same story to her daughter's horror because it was like a nice emotional moment between them. And now it's just drunk talk. So you're like, okay, well they've gone back and they've reused that scene. So that's what it's about. And then after Gordon's death, you have this amazing image of him leaping off of that quarry where he couldn't do it before and being fearless in that moment. And then going back to his, his life. Uh, and you're like, no, that's what that story was about. And you, uh, like you said, that process of revisions is not something that is common in TV. And it's so effective. I mean, it just that episode is just shivers the whole time, just even thinking about it, yeah. uh, the way it draws on stuff that you already know. And like you said, it's almost like a hangout show, like the characters are so well drawn that you don't even in four seasons, you feel like, you know, these people and like, 
it draws so intelligently on that um, in, in the final episodes, I thought. On television, the characters are never alone. We're always looking over their shoulders. But you still have that feeling that that was something that Gordon did on his own. And he mm-hmm. didn't tell Donna. He didn't tell anyone. And we didn't know until the end either. I guess it represents that there are hidden depths to these <laughs> characters, that they have resonances. And, and just, you know, on a very basic level... The show, as well as being about work and relationships and all this, is about risk. And they spend a lot of time considering whether risks are worth taking. And in some ways, that's what all of the you know particular stories of, of games or communities are all of that. They're really about, shall we take this risk? Is this risk worth it? And there he is, taking risks. It's uh, awesome. Do you guys think that shows that nobody cares about have so much of a better chance to get their finales right than shows they do like i just watching this i was like oh you guys did such a nice great job i'm so happy for you that no one was like obsessing about how you're going to do it yeah better than say seinfeld's but i suspect maybe they just got less interference and so nobody got in the way of their good ideas well slate.com's review of the halt and catch fire finale was that it was really really good and you guys should all go watch the show yeah you will not be sad and feel free to start at season two and then when you go back to season one you'll even like it Yeah. So thanks very much for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, please rate and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil, or if you have any other feedback you'd like to share, please send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is June Thomas. For June and Matthew, I'm Willa Paskin. Thanks very much for listening. So before we go, I want to tell you about a new app. You're a podcast listener. You found lots of shows you love, like this one. But what about podcasts for your kids? Until now, the offerings have been spotty and hard to find. That's why Panoply created Pinna, an entire audio service just for kids. Pinna is a standalone iPhone app filled with hours of original stories and serials, great podcasts, and all-you-can-listen audiobooks. And there's more added each week. Audio gets your kids off of screens and lets them use their imaginations. Pinna is ad-free, guilt-free, and a great activity for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or anytime. You can try Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm slash listen to start your free trial today.